Part 2A Madness of Piccadilly by Lawrence Oliphant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nigel Carrington. Madness. Flightyville, March the 20th. As the event which I am about to recount forms the turning point of my life, unless, indeed, something still more remarkable happens, which I do not at present foresee, to turn me back again, I do not feel that it would be either becoming or indeed possible for me to maintain that vein of easy cheerfulness which has characterised my composition hitherto. What is fun to you, O oh my reader, may be death to me, and nothing can be further from my intention than to excite the smallest tendency to risibility on your part at my misfortunes or trials. You will already have guessed what these are, but how to recur to those agonizing details how to present to you the picture of my misery in its true colors nothing but the stern determination to carry out my original design and the conscientious conviction that the story of my life from month to month may be made a profitable study to my fellow men could induce me in this cold-blooded way to tear open the still unhealed wound i came down to breakfast rather late on the morning following the events narrated in the last chapter Broadhem and Grandon had already vanished from the scene. So had Mr. Wogg, who went up to town to see what he called the elephant, an American expression signifying to gain experience of the world. The phrase originated in an occurrence at a menagerie, and as upon this occasion Mr. Wogg applied it to the opening of Parliament, it was not altogether inappropriate. I found still lingering over the debris of breakfast my host and hostess, Lady Broadhem and her daughters, the bishop and chundango the latter appearing to having all the talk to himself and to give him his due his conversation was generally entertaining my dear mother he was saying still unconverted has buried all my jewellery in the back veranda after i had cleared a million sterling i divided it into two parts with one part i bought jewels of which my mother is an excellent judge and the other i put out at interest not forgetting with an upward glance a sum the interest of which i do not look for here then did you give all your jewels to your mother asked lady broadhem oh no she is only keeping them till i can bestow them upon the woman i choose for her daughter-in-law are you looking out for her now i asked somewhat abruptly yes my dear friend said john i hope to find in england some christian young person as a yoke-mate there was a self-satisfied roll of his eyes he said this which took away from me all further desire for the bacon and eggs I'd just put on my plate. "'Dear Mr. Chundango,' said Lady Broadhem, "'tell us some of your adventures as a catechist in the Bombay Gouts. "'Did you give up all when you became one? "'Was your family noble? "'And did you undergo much persecution from them?' "'The Raja of Satara is my first cousin,' said Chundango, unblushingly. "'But they repudiated me when I became a Christian.' and deny the relationship are you going up to convocation said dickiefield to the bishop to divert attention from chundango's last barefaced assertion i hear they're going to take some further action about the judgment on the essays and reviews yes said joseph and i see there is a chance of three new seas being created i should like to talk over the matter with you 
considering how seriously my health has suffered in the tropics and how religiously i have adhered to my liberal opinions in politics even in the most trying climate it might be worth while excuse me for interrupting you my dear lord said dickiefield but the present government are not so particular about the political as the theological views of their bishops when you remember that the prime minister of this country is held morally accountable for the orthodoxy of its religious tenets you must at once perceive how essential it is not only that he should be profoundly versed in points of scriptural doctrine himself but that he should never appoint a bishop of whose soundness he is not from personal knowledge thoroughly satisfied i have no objection to talk over the more disputed points with him said the bishop when do you think he could spare a moment the best plan would be replied dickiefield with a twinkle in his eye to catch him in the lobby of the house some evening when there's nothing particular going on what books of reference would you require the bishop named one when i interrupted him for i felt dickiefield had not put the case fairly as regarded the first minister of the crown tis not the premier's fault at all said i he may be the most liberal theologian possible but he's nothing to do with doctrine that lies in the chancellor's department as the supreme arbiter in points of religious belief and as the largest dispenser of spiritual patronage in the kingdom it is evident that the qualifications of a lord chancellor should be not so much his knowledge of law as his unblemished moral character and incapacity for perpetrating jobs he is in fact the principal veterinary surgeon of the ecclesiastical stable and any man in orders that he warrants sound cannot be objected to on the score of orthodoxy the prime minister is just in the same position as the head of any other department whoever passes the competitive examination he is bound to accept but may use his own discretion as to promotion and of course sticks to the traditions of the service the fact is if you go into the colonial episcopal line you get over the heads of a lot of men who are steadily plodding on for home promotion and of course they don't think it fair for an outsider to come back again and cut them out of a palace and a patronage attached to it on the strength of having been a missionary bishop it's just the same in the foreign office if you go out of europe you get out of the regular line however we still have the judgment on the colenso case before long and from the little i know of the question it is possible you may find that you're not legally a bishop at all in that case you will have what is far better than any interest a grievance you can say that you were tempted to give up a good living to go to the heathen on false pretences and they'll have to make it up to you you could not do better than apply for one of the appointments attached to some cathedrals called peculiars i believe that they're very comfortable and independent if you will allow me i will write to my solicitor about one lawyers are the men to manage these matters as they're all in with each other and every bishop has one attached to him thank you my lord my observation was addressed to lord dickiefield said the bishop very stiffly for there was an absence of that deference in my tone to which those who love the uppermost seats in the synagogues are accustomed but which i reserve for some poor labourers who will never be heard of in this world talking of committees i went on how confused the lord chancellor must be between them all he must be very apt to forget when he is sitting and when he is being sat upon if he had not the clearest possible head he would be proving to the world that mr e was competent to teach the zulu's theology in spite of the bishop of cape town and that he was justified in giving dr colenso a large retiring pension what with having to quote texts in one committee room and arithmetic in another 
and having to explain the law of god the law of the land and his own conduct alternately it is a miracle that he does not get a softening of the brain depend upon it said i turning to the bishop who looked flushed and angry that a peculiar is a much snugger place than the woolsack lord frank permit me to say broke in lady broadhem who had several times vainly endeavoured to interrupt me that your manner of treating sacred subjects is most disrespectful and irreverent and that your allusions to an ecclesiastical stable outsiders and other racing slang is in the worst possible taste considering the presence of the bishop lady broadhem said i sternly when the money changers were scourged out of the temple there was no want of reverence displayed towards the service to which it was dedicated and it seems to me that to sell the temple itself, whether under the name of an advowson, a living, or a cure of souls, is the very climax of irreverence, not to use a stronger term. And when the Lord Chancellor brings in an act for the purpose of facilitating this traffic in souls, and augmenting the benefices derived from curing them, I think it is high time, at the risk of giving offence to my friend the bishop, and to the ecclesiastical establishment generally, to speak out what times we have fallen upon that the priesthood itself once an inspiration has become a trade lady broadhem seemed a little cowed by my vehemence which some might have thought amounted to rudeness but would not abandon the field the result she said of impoverishing the church will be that you will only get literates to go into it as it is compared with other professions it holds out no inducement for young men of family Fortunately, our own living, being worth twelve hundred pounds a year, always secures us a member of the family, and therefore a gentleman. But if you did away with them, you would not have holier men, but simply worse-bred ones. I am sure we would not gain by having the church filled with clergy of the class of dissenting preachers. I don't think you would, any more than the Pharisees would have gained by being reduced at the level of the Sadducees. Not that I would wish to use either term offensively towards the conscientious individuals who were, doubtless, comprised in the above sects in old time, still less as a reproach to the excellent men who fill the churches and chapels of this country now. But it has possibly not occurred to them that the churchianity of the present day bears as little resemblance to the Christianity of eighteen hundred years ago as the latter did to the worship it came to supersede and i felt i had sown seed in the ecclesiastical vineyard and would leave it to fructify good fellow frank i overheard dickiefield say as i left the room tis a pity his head is a little turned ah i thought something is upside down perhaps it is my head but i rather think it is the world generally including always the religious world it seemed to have taken a start in the right direction nearly two thousand years ago and now it has all slipped back again worse than ever, and is whirling the wrong way with a rapidity that makes one giddy. I feel more giddy than usual today, somehow. I soliloquized, and every time I look at Lady Ursula, I feel exactly as if I had smoked too much. It can't be really that, so I'll light a cigar and steady my nerves before I come to the tremendous issue. She is too sensible to mind my smelling of tobacco these were the thoughts that passed through my somewhat bewildered brain as i stepped out upon the terrace and lit my cigar so far from my nerves becoming steadier however under the usually soothing influence i felt my heart beating more rapidly each time i endeavoured to frame the sentence upon which was to depend the happiness of my life until at last my resolution gave way altogether and i determined to put upon paper in the form of an interrogatory the momentous question 
a glass door opened from a recess in the drawing-room upon the terrace on which i was walking and in it on my former visits i had been in the daily habit of writing my letters it was a snug retreat with a fire all to itself a charming view and a portiere which separated it not from the drawing-room according to the wish of the occupant the first question i had to consider when i put the writing materials before me was whether i ought to begin dear lady ursula or my dear lady ursula i should not have entertained the idea of beginning my dear did i not feel that having known her as a child entitled me to assume a certain intimacy however on further consideration i adopted the more distant form and then my real difficulty began while looking for an inspiration at the further end of the avenue which stretched from the lawn i became conscious of a figure moving slowly towards me which i finally perceived to be that of lady broadhem herself in my then frame of mind any escape from my dilemma was a relief and i instinctively left the still unwritten note and joined her this is a courageous proceeding lady broadhem the weather is scarcely mild enough for strolling i determined to make sure of some exercise she replied the clouds look threatening besides i have a good deal on my mind and i can always think better when i am walking alone she put a marked emphasis on the last word i can't imagine why so i said that is just my case if you only knew the torture i am enjoying you would not wonder at my wanting to be alone as for exercise it would not be of the slightest use dear me said lady broadhem pulling a little box like a card case out of her pocket tell me your exact symptoms and i'll give you some globules it is not altogether beyond the power of homeopathy i said with a sigh hahnemann was quite right when he adopted as the motto for his system like cures like it applies to my complaint exactly love will cure love but not in homeopathic doses how very odd i was thinking the very same thing when you joined me my dear girls are of course ever uppermost in my mind and i really am troubled about ursula i think she said looking with a sidelong glance into my face i know who is on the point of declaring himself and then she stopped suddenly as though she had spoken under some irresistible impulse i don't remember having blushed since i first went to school but if lady broadhem could have seen the colour of my skin under my thick beard she would have perceived how just her penetration had been still i was a good deal puzzled at the quickness with which she had made a discovery i imagined unknown even to the object of my affections to say nothing of the coarseness of her alluding to it to me in that direct manner what had i said or done that could have put her on the scent i pondered in vain over the mystery my conduct had been most circumspect during the few hours i had been in love nothing but the sagacity with which the maternal instinct is endowed could account for it do you think lady ursula returns the affection said i timidly ursula is a dear well-principled girl who will make any man who is fortunate enough to win her happy i am sure she will be guided by my wishes in the matter and now lord frank i think we have discussed this subject sufficiently i have said more perhaps than i ought but we are such old friends that although i entirely disagree with your religious opinions it has been a relief to me even to say thus much I trust my anxieties will soon be at an end with which most encouraging speech lady broadhem turned towards the house leaving me overcome with rapture and astonishment slightly tinged with disgust at finding that the girl i loved was thrown at my head 
I did not delay when I got back to my recess in the drawing-room to tear up with a triumphant gesture my note beginning dear and to commence another my dear Lady Ursula. The conversation which I have just had with Lady Broadhem, I went on, encourages me to lose no time in writing to you to explain the nature of those feelings which she seems to have detected almost as soon as they were called into existence, and which gathers strength with such rapidity that a sentiment akin to self-preservation urges me not to lose another moment in placing myself and my fortune at your disposal. If I allude to the latter, it is not because I think such a consideration would influence you in the smallest degree, but because you may not suspect from my economical habits the extent of my private resources. I am well aware that my impulsive nature has led me into an apparent precipitancy in writing thus, but if I cannot flatter myself that the short time I have passed in your society has sufficed to inspire you with a reciprocal sentiment, Lady Broadhem's assurance that I may depend upon your acceding to her wishes in this most important act of your life affords me the strongest encouragement. Believe me, yours most faithfully, Frank Vaincourt. I've already observed that when my mind is very deeply absorbed in composition I become almost insensible to external influences. Thus it was not until I had finished my letter and was reading it over that I became conscious of sounds in the drawing-room. I was just thinking that I had got the word sentiment twice, and was wondering what I could substitute for that expressive term, when I suppose I must have overheard, for I insensibly found myself signing my name, Jewel. Then came the unmistakable sound of Chundango's voice, mentioning the name dearest to me. "'Remember, Lady Ursula,' said that regenerate pagan, "'there are very few men who could offer their bride such a collection of jewels as I can. Think.' that although of a different complexion from yourself, I am of royal blood. You are surely too enlightened and noble-minded to allow the trivial consideration of colour to influence you. Mr. Chundango, said Lady Ursula, and I heard the rustle of her dress as she rose from her chair, you really must excuse me from listening to you any more. Stop one moment, said Chundango, and I suspect he tried to get hold of her hand, for I heard a short, quick movement. I have not made this proposal without receiving first the sanction of Lady Broadhem. Deceitful old hypocrite, thought I, with suppressed fury, when I told her ladyship that I would settle a million's worth of pounds upon you in jewellery and stock, that my blood was royal, and that all my aspirations were for social distinction, she said she desired no higher qualification. What, dear Mr. Chundango, she remarked, matters the colour of your skin if your blood is pure? If your jewellery and your conversion are both genuine, what more could an anxious mother desire for her beloved daughter? Spare me, I implore you, said Ursula, in a voice betraying great agitation. You don't know the pain you are giving me. Whether Chundango at this moment fell on his knees, which I don't think likely, as natives never thus far humble themselves before the sex, or whether he stumbled over a footstool in trying to prevent her leaving the room, which is more probable, I could not discover. I merely heard a heavy sound— and then the door open. I think the Indian must have hurt himself, as the next time I heard his voice it was trembling with passion. Lady Broadhem, he said, for it appears she it was who had entered the room. I do not understand Lady Ursula's conduct. I thought obedience to parents was one of the first precepts of the Christian religion, but when I tell her your wishes on the subject of our marriage, she forbids me to speak. I will now leave her in your hands and I hope I shall receive her from them in the evening in another and a better frame of mind. And Chundango marched solemnly out and banged the door after him. 
"'What have you done, Ursula?' said Lady Broadhem, in a cold, hard voice. "'I suppose some absurd prejudice about his colour has influenced you in refusing a fortune that few girls have placed at their feet. He is a man of remarkable ability. In some lights there is a decided richness in his hue, and Lord Dickiefield tells me he fully expects to see him some day under secretary for India, and ultimately perhaps in the Cabinet. Moreover, he is very lavish.' and would take a pride in giving you all you could possibly want, and in meeting all our wishes. He would be most useful to Broadhem, whose property, you know, was dreadfully involved by his father in his young days. In fact, he promised me to pay off three hundred thousand pounds of the debt upon his personal security, and not ask for any interest for the first few years. All this you are throwing away for some girlish fancy for someone else. Here my heart bounded. Dear girl thought I, she loves me, and I'll rush in and tell her that I return her passion. Moreover, I will overwhelm that old woman with confusion for having so grossly deceived me. A scarcely audible sob from Lady Ursula decided me, and to the astonishment of mother and daughter I suddenly revealed myself. Lady Ursula gave a start and a little exclamation, and before I could explain myself, had hurried from the room. Lady Broadhem confronted me, stern, defiant, and indignant. "'Is it righteous, Lady Broadhem?' I began, but she interrupted me. "'My indignation? Yes, Lord Frank, it is. "'No, Lady Broadhem, I did not allude to your indignation, which is unjustifiable. "'I was about to express my feelings in language which I thought might influence you "'with reference to the deception you have practised upon me. "'You gave me to understand only half an hour ago "'that you approved of my attachment to your daughter.' "'You implied that that attachment was returned. "'Indeed, I have just overheard as much from her own lips. "'And now you deliberately urge her to ally herself with... "'The thought is too horrible!' "'And I lifted my handkerchief to my eyes to conceal my unaffected emotion. "'Lord Frank,' said Lady Broadhem calmly, "'you had no business to overhear anything. "'However, I suppose the state of your feelings must be your excuse.' "'It seems that we entirely misunderstood each other this morning. "'The attachment I then alluded to was the one we have just heard Mr. Chundango declare. "'I did so because I thought of asking you to find out some particulars about him which I am anxious to know. "'I was utterly ignorant of your having entertained the same feelings for Ursula. "'What settlements are you prepared to make?' "'This question was put so abruptly that a mixed feeling of indignation and contempt completely mastered me. At these moments I possess the faculty of sublime impertinence. I shall make Broadhem a liberal allowance, and settle an annuity upon yourself, which my solicitor will pay you quarterly. I know the family is poor. It will give me great pleasure to keep you all. Lady Broadhem's lips quivered with anger. But the Duke of Dunderhead's second son, who had inherited all the Flightyville property through his mother, was a fish worth landing, so she controlled her feelings with an effort of self-possession which commanded my highest admiration, and said in a gentle tone, as she held out her hand with a subdued smile, "'Forgive the natural anxiety of a mother, Lord Frank, as I forgive you for that last speech.' Here she lifted her eyes and remained silent for a few moments. Then she sighed deeply. She meant me to understand by this that she had been permitted to overcome her feelings of resentment towards me, and was now overflowing with Christian charity. "'Dear Lady Broadhem,' I replied affectionately, for I felt preternaturally intelligent, 
and ready for the most elaborate maternal strategy. How thankful we ought to be, that on an occasion of this kind we can both so thoroughly command our feelings. Believe me, your anxiety for your daughter's welfare is only equalled by the fervour of my affection for her. Shall we say one hundred thousand pounds in stock, and Flightyville Park as a dower house? What stock, Lord Frank? asked her ladyship, as she subsided languidly into a chair. Not Mexicans or Spanish passives, I do most fervently trust. No, said I, maliciously, nearly all in Confederate and Greek loans. Oh, she ejaculated with a little scream, as if something had stung her. What's the matter, Lady Broadhem? and she looked so unhappy and disconcerted that I had compassion on her. I was only joking. You need be under no apprehension as to the securities. They're as sound as your own theology, and would satisfy the Lord Chancellor quite as well. Oh, it was not that. Perhaps some day, when you and dear Ursula are married, I will tell you all about it. For you have my full consent, and I need not say what an escape I think she has had from that black man. Entre nous, as it is most important you should understand exactly the situation, I must correct one error into which you have fallen. She is not in love with you, Lord Frank. You must expect a little opposition at first, but that will only add zest to the pursuit, and my wishes will be paramount in the end. The fact is, but this is a profound secret. Your friend, Lord Grandon, has behaved most improperly in the matter. He came down on some pretense of instilling his ridiculous notions into Broadhem, who took a fancy to him when we were all staying at Lady Mundane's, and I strongly opposed it. As I fancied even then, he was paying Ursula too much attention. But she has such influence with Broadhem that she carried her point, because, she said, her brother could only get good from him. What exactly passed at Broadhem I don't know but I was so angry at the idea of an almost penniless Irish peer taking advantage of his opportunities as a visitor to entrap my girl's affections that I told him I expected some people and should want his bedroom. He left within an hour, and Ursula declares he never uttered a word which warranted this decisive measure. But people can do a good deal without uttering, as she calls it, and I am quite determined not to let them see anything of each other during the season. Fortunately, Lord Grandon scarcely ever goes out, and Broadhem, whose eyes are opened at last, has promised to watch him. Whoever Ursula marries must do something for Broadhem. Although I am unable to record this speech word for word, I am quite unable to account for the curious psychological fact that it is becoming graven on my memory, while at the time I was unconscious of listening to it. The pattern of the carpet... A particular curl of Lady Broadhem's front, the fact that the clock struck one, are all stamped upon the plate of my internal perceptive faculties with the vividness of a photograph. The vision of happiness which I had conjured up was changing into a hideous contrast, and reminded me of the diorama at the Colosseum in my youth, where a fairy landscape with a pastoral group at lunch in the foreground became gradually converted into a pandemonium of flames and devils. I felt borne along by a mighty torrent which was sweeping me from Elysian fields into some fathomless abyss. Love and friendship both coming down together in one mighty crash, and the only thing left standing, Lady Broadhem, right in front of me, a very stern reality indeed. I don't the least know the length of time which elapsed between the end of her speech and when I returned to consciousness, 
probably not many seconds, though it seemed an age. I gasped for breath, so she kindly came to my relief. "'My dear Lord Frank,' she said, "'after all it might have been worse. "'Supposing that Lord Grandon had not been your friend, "'or had not had the absurd, quixotic ideas "'which I understand he has of the duties of friendship, "'he might have given you immense trouble. "'As it is, I am sure he is only to know "'the exact state of the case to retire. "'I know him quite well enough for that. "'I look upon it as providential.' Had it been Mr. Chundango, Grandon would most probably have persevered. Now he is quite capable of doing all he can to help you with Ursula. I groaned in spirit. How well had Lady Broadhem judged the character of the man to whom she would not give her daughter. I am so glad to think, Lady Broadhem, said I, with a bitter laugh, that you do not suspect me of such a ridiculous exaggeration of sentiment. So far from it, it seems to impart a peculiar piquancy to the pursuit, when success is only possible at the sacrifice of another's happiness. And when that other is one's oldest friend, there is a refinement of emotion, a sort of pleasurable pain, which is quite irresistible. To what element in our nature do you attribute this? To original sin, I'm afraid, said Lady Broadhem, looking down, for my manner seemed to puzzle and make her nervous. "'Oh, it is not at all original,' said I. "'Whatever other merit it possesses, it can't claim originality. "'It is the commonest thing in the world. "'But I think it's an acquired taste at first. "'It grows upon you like caviar or olives. "'I remember some years ago in Australia "'running away with the wife of a charming fellow. "'Oh, Lord Frank, Lord Frank, please, stop. "'Have you repented? "'And where is she?' "'No,' I said, "'I never intended to repent.' and I'll tell you where she is after the marriage. At this crisis the demon of recklessness which had sustained me and prompted the above atrocious falsehood deserted me suddenly, so I leant against the mantelpiece and sobbed aloud. I remember deriving a malicious satisfaction from the idea that Lady Broadhem thought I was weeping for my imaginary Australian. How very dreadful, said she, when I became somewhat calmer. We must forget the past and try and reform ourselves, mustn't we? she went on, caressingly. But I had no idea that you would pass through a jeunesse or a jeuse. Do you know, I think men, when they do steady, are always the better for it. Well, I hope Lady Ursula may keep me quiet. Nothing else ever has yet. I suppose you won't expect me to go to the church. We'll talk about that after the marriage, to use your own expression, replied Lady Broadhem with a smile. Because, you know, I am worse than Grandon as regards orthodoxy. Now, Chundango is so thoroughly sound. Don't you think, after all, that that is the first consideration? To tell you the truth, but of course I never breathed it to Ursula, I attach a good deal of importance to colour. Ah, I see. You classify us somewhat in this way. First, if you can get it, rich, orthodox and white. Second, rich, heterodox and white. Third, rich, orthodox and black. Now, in my opinion, to attach any importance whatever to colour is wicked. My objections to Mr. Chundango do not apply to his skin, which is as good as any other, but to his heart, which I am afraid is black. I prefer a pure heart in a dark skin to a black heart in a white one. And I look significantly at her ladyship, supposing that out of friendship for Grandon I should do the absurd thing of withdrawing my pretensions. What would happen? 
I should insist upon Ursula's marrying Mr. Chundango. I tell you in confidence, Lord Frank, that pecuniary reasons, which I will explain more fully at another time, render it absolutely necessary that she should marry a man with means within the next six months. The credit of our whole family is at stake, but it is impossible for me to enter into details now. At this moment the luncheon was announced. I followed Lady Broadhem mechanically towards the dining-room, but instead of entering it went upstairs like one in a dream, and ordered my servant to make arrangements for my immediate departure. I pulled my armchair near my bedroom fire and gazed hopelessly into it. End of Part 2A Madness Read by Nigel Carrington